the ABC's word wizard, the Lord of Language. A word in your ear with Professor Rawley Sussex. If you have a question about language, now is the time to call 1300 612 and let Professor Rawley Sussex answer it for you. Good morning, Rawley. Dobry den, jak se mate? So, is that Polish or Czech? Or? That's, that's Czech. Czech. It is morning. Good day, how are you? That's right. well, so, it's not morning there, is it? No, it is two in the morning, but because I want to talk to the, uh, to the listeners, I've climbed out of bed. And I'm in Brno, B-R-N-O, which is the major town of Moravia in the southern part of what is now the Czech Republic. Uh, it's a place of about 400,000, and it's the home of Gregor Mendel, who was the, the person who discovered DNA and how, how all of that stuff works. So it's, it's actually quite a, an impressive place. Yeah, Mendel used to love... Uh growing beans or something didn't he and it was it was peas yes and yeah. he he worked out how uh, inheritance works in terms of genes but then they made him um, abbot of the of the local um, religious order and he gave up science and was in fact entirely ignored for about 40 years until someone discovered his work and pub and sort of popularized it from vienna and he became a very very famous person after his death that's yeah it's a good story quite a common rock and roll story isn't it to be discovered well after your death I'm, I'm afraid so yes it's also the birthplace near here of Thomas Gorig Masaryk who was the president of the first Czech Republic from 18 to 35 remember that the Czechs were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire for centuries and they didn't get a country of their own until 1918 and then, of course, in 1938, Hitler took all over, over all, the whole area and included it in Germany. And uh, so the Czechs were reborn after the war. And then when communism failed, they very uh, gently and professionally separated Czechoslovakia and Slovakia. So this is now the Czech Republic. And not far from here is the Slovak Republic. And just down the road from there is Hungary. So it's, it's very much Central Europe. It's a beautiful part of the world. I think Prague is one of the prettiest cities I've ever seen because ah. somehow it managed to avoid being bombed in the war. Well, the, the Czechs decided quite rationally in 1939 that they couldn't hope to stand up to the German army and uh, decided not to fight. Ah. Um, the Poles, on the other hand, did fight and, of course, Warsaw yes. was reduced to rubble. Yes. Um, but as a result, you get a city like Prague, which has continuous architecture going way, way back, hundreds of years. And in fact, I'll be there in three days. You are hearing now from Professor Rowley Sussex. If you've got a question for Rowley, start calling in. The number is 1300 triple two six twelve any question about language that you want answered and Rolly you wanted to talk about Latin today I did um, Latin belongs to the same family of languages as English but it its own subfamily was called Romance and that split off quite some time before and as uh, at the end of the Roman Empire as the the Romans lost control of the various bits the people at the end of the line, like the French and the Portuguese and the Italians and the Spaniards, their languages became more and more distinct, and Latin sort of diversified into a lot of, a lot of the modern languages. But Latin is the language of the church, it's the language of a terrific literature and an early period of writing, and it's left a whole lot of stuff in English, which we use a lot, but often don't know the meaning of. So I thought we'd have a look yeah. at things like E, G, and I, E, and so on today, and a few more as well. Yeah, can you explain some of those words? 
Okay, um, e.g. is exempli gratia, which means for the sake of an example. So it's exactly what it says it is, but very few people in English now know exactly what it was when it was part of Latin. And i.e. is id est, which means that is. And of course that's the way you use it, i.e. to explain something. You know, that is, and here it comes. So these things are, uh, you know, they are very much, they're quite frequent too, part of our, our modern language. Some of them are more obscure. Now, there's the, the, film, the film Dead Poets Society was, was famous for using the Latin phrase carpe diem. Now, that means, well, it was presented in the film as meaning grasp the day. In other words, value every day and don't let it go by. But carpe is much softer than that. It means something like cherish the day. And so, you know, rather than grabbing the day by the throat, carpe diem men, means stand back, reflect, and appreciate the beautiful things of the day around you. So carpe diem, no, don't, don't sort of go mindlessly through your life. Uh, listen and watch what's around you and appreciate it. So that's a part of English as well. Is there something about Latin? Are there strengths and weaknesses to the language that we as English speakers have inherited? I think Latin was very disciplined, and uh, there is a man called Donatus who's ra who ra wrote the more or less definitive grammar of Latin about the fourth century. And so Latin is a language which is very well understood, uh, the grammar, the vocabulary, and so on. In fact, it's a dead language now, and pretty well the only place where it's spoken is in the Vatican. Other than that, it's only a language in books, and you can say whether a word is in or is not in Latin, whereas in English that's almost impossible because there's lots of things which are happening on the edges of English all the time and new words are being added. It seems like these languages that were developed for religious rituals are very precise because you didn't want to annoy God, you didn't want to say the wrong thing, and maybe we've inherited that precision <laughs> years later. I think there's something in that, you know. And uh, the, this is also true of classical Greek, which is a dead language, and classical Sanskrit, which is, of course, the language which gave birth eventually to Hindi in India. Yeah. And because they were religious uh, and used for worship, there was a very strong respect for the integrity of the language. You had to transmit the word of God properly to the people around and to the next generation. And the, there was a lot of, lot of penalties for people who actually misused the language. The other thing about Latin was that it was the language of scholarship until about the 17th century. Now, Isaac Newton, the, the, the person who discovered gravity, wrote his great book on maths. It was called De Principia Mathematica, which is Principles of Mathematics. But then he wrote a book about light, and that was about optics, and he wrote that one in English. And this is one of the great moments in English because this was the time when a major original work of science was written in English, and obviously Isaac thought that the language was mature enough and expressive enough and rigorous enough to hold some very complicated argumentation in physics. And so, you know, this was the moment when English burst forth as a language of science. And it's now true that in some areas of, uh, of uh, scientific endeavor, more than 95% of the top work is written in English worldwide. Yes, it's a beautiful story of our coming of age. Riley, we've had a few, quite a few calls coming already, so we might go to the phones. Okay. Jordan is on the Sunshine Coast. Good morning, Jordan. Okay, guys. Uh, Riley Ashwin, uh, good to speak. Um, my call was in a, a relation to last week when there was the query about the maxi and super yacht element, so I had some answers for that. Oh, um, great. Tell us. 
I'll just give you some background. I'm here with my good buddy, Nick. And uh, in the world of sailing, there are three major events. It's the Olympics, the America's Cup, and the Ocean Race. They're the major events. And Nick and I both work on the Ocean Race. Nick was the chief technical yeah. officer. And I was also the expert commentator for the World Sailing Game. So we think we've got enough credibility okay. to provide the answer for you. Woo-hoo. And I also have a quick story afterwards that you'll probably quite enjoy, Rolly. Um, so the definition in the world of racing boats... We use a rule, a rating rule, to equate boats that are all different in sizes to work out yep. um, how they should perform. So it's not just the first boat across the line that wins, otherwise you just spend the most money. They work out on a rating who is the winner, so effectively a handicap system. And a maxi, right. is, a maxi is the largest boat that fits within that rule. It's what a maximum size boat, and it became that term maxi is how it's evolved. Ah. It's as simple Great. as that. And then the super yacht term comes from large... There's a commercial yachting code in, uh, in Great Britain, and it defines a large commercial yacht as a vessel 24 metres or larger. Now, it has to have the purpose of being for pleasure or sport, not cargo. So that is what is defined ah. as a super yacht. It's not a rating rule. But it is over 24 metres in size, and it's as simple as that. You've given us a terrific lesson today. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling. What was your story that you wanted to tell? Um, So, obviously, uh, Nick and I live in the world of pro uh, pro sailing, and we travel a lot, an awful lot. um, And you don't get good sleep, and you're always on planes in different languages. So we live in the world of podcasts. and. We're massive fans of Rolly and what um, he says and talks, and we've shared our fandom around the world of pro sailing. So you're quite the hit in the world of pro sailing. <laughs> Thank you. To the, to the extent there's actually a, um, a pod sailing podcast that keeps calling for you to come on and talk about some of the, the words in sailing. I just thought okay, you Okay. You mean on, in the Woofties or on this program? No, no, no. It just there's another podcast in, in the world of sailing, professional sailing world, and they they're always calling right. out saying if Riley ever wants to come on, yeah. he's welcome. Do you ever well, do that? Well, they should they should they should contact me. I used to sail moths when I was much younger, but not the hydrofoil moths. So I'm really interested in this area, and I've I've learned a lot today. Thanks, mate, a lot. Thanks for calling in, Jordan. You are listening to ABC Radio. That was a call last week where we were questioning whether the word super was necessary in a yacht, super yacht, but it seems that there is a reason for it. Michael is in Maryborough. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Ashwin. What was your question for Rowley? Oh, good morning, Rowley. Um, morning. My question revolves around the... The incident with the airliner during the week, Air Canada airliner, flying from Vancouver to Sydney via Honolulu. Now, it had landed in Honolulu and refueled, taken on more passengers and took off. Two hours into the flight, the incident occurred with um, the aircraft dropping in altitude. Um, yes. The news reports are saying the aircraft then diverted to Honolulu, but because mm. it had already landed in Honolulu, refueled, took off, and two hours into the flight, the incident occurred, I'd say it returned to Honolulu, not diverted. Mm -hmm. Mm. Technically, I think you're probably right, uh, except that any aircraft which is 
heading from A to B and for some reason it can't get to B and has to go somewhere else. I think it's a fairly standard sort of formula that it diverted. But I, I think also in this particular case returning to Honolulu would be a better way of saying it because it's, it's literally got to do 180 degrees and come back again rather yes. than heading for a place like Fiji which is on the way. Exactly, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. No, dead right, thank right. you. Thanks for your call, Michael. Rolly, does it have anything to do with your intention? Like you intended to go to Sydney, so anything that deviates from that is a diversion. I think so. And uh, it, usually if aircraft are diverted, they're be diverted because of bad weather ahead or because of incidents in flight. Uh, sometimes they've got uh, rumbustious passengers who have to be taken to the ground. They can also, I was on a flight once that was diverted uh, to Christchurch because one of the passengers was extremely ill and they had to land quickly and get the person to hospital. Oh, okay. And uh, that was part of a 48-hour trip from Ecuador oh. to Sydney. I was not pleased. No. <laughs> Jess is in Southport. Good morning, Jess. Uh, good morning, Ashwin. Good morning, Raleigh. What's your question, Jess? I wonder why Queensland is the only state where people still refer to luggage as ports everywhere else mm. in their cases. Yeah, this is something which I discovered when I came to live in Queensland in 89. And there's no reason for it. It just grew up locally. Uh, particularly um, with kids going to school, they take their, their little lunch or morning lunch or whatever you call it in a port. And when I came to Queensland, I only knew port as the place where ships go or the thing that daddy drinks on Sundays. Yeah. And this extra, but you know, it, it is in fact related to um, the French word porter and uh, portage, which is when you carry a canoe from one part to another because there's no water. And uh, portmanteau, which is a French big case for carrying uh, overcoats, actually, manteau. So that it, it's not an uh, an unprincipled word, it's just that it is a Queensland-only thing, and for some reason it's persisted here very well, whereas it hasn't elsewhere in Australia. I don't think it ever took root in, in uh, the southern states. I, n I never knew it when I was at school there. Thanks for calling in. Jess Travis in Rochdale. Good morning, Travis. Uh, hi. What's your question for Rolly? Yep, yeah, just a question. Um, we're talking at work, and um, people from... Sorry. Sorry, you just cut out there, Travis. Can you just repeat that again? Sorry, yeah, we're just talking at work, um, a bunch of people from different cultures and a couple of us Aussies were talking about Chinese burn as something that we used to yeah. do to each other as kids. But um, we just thought, well, maybe that's a bit of a racist term. We, but we tried to work out where it came from and, and we weren't quite sure. So, um, uh, I don't think anyone knows where it comes from. It's, it's when you take someone, usually by the arm, and twist the skin in opposite directions so that it hurts. Uh, and there's another one, Chinese whispers. When you get a whole lot of kids in a line and A whispers to B something and then B whispers to C what they think they've heard, and when you get to the end of the line, the message is obviously, is often enormously different from when it started. Um, I was asked on air a while ago whether Chinese whispers was, was racist. I don't think it's as bad as that because it's, it's just a kid's game. But Chinese burn is, is more difficult because it suggests inflicting pain. And uh, I think in, in this case it would be, you're quite right to, to ask the question, I think it would be wiser to avoid it nowadays because 
uh, we are now much more sensitive than we used to be about giving offence to other people on the grounds of ethnicity and their, where they come from. Rowley, I think Chinese burns... Oh, hang on, Rod just brought something in. Yeah, because I, I, I heard yeah. in America it was called uh, You Said What or something, and Rob's our producer said, the reason it's called a Chinese burn comes from martial arts. When you throw an opponent oh. over, and when you throw them and hold onto their arms while throwing them, they often get burned, so it's called a Chinese burn. Wow. So if, if this is actually is, is a technical term within a sport, then I suppose it's probably got a space where it can persist. Yeah, I, I noted on, on some research on the internet that um, in America they call them Indian burns. <laughs> okay, so everyone's Oh, really? Here. Yeah, so I think, it, I don't know, and I wasn't quite convinced by the martial art argument, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could be. <laughs> Travis, have you, have you got kids? Would you use a different name for that game? Um, I'd probably hope they wouldn't play it these days. <laughs> yeah, they're too busy looking at their screens. Right. Hi, Travis, thanks for calling in. All right, no worries. And thank you also for Indian Burn, because this is an interesting example where in different parts of the world, uh, the certain things are given uh, given different names depending on the ethnicity of the people next door. For example, in, um, in French... Uh, there's a phrase, filet à l'anglaise, which means to leave in the English manner. And the translation of that in English is to take French leave. Uh -huh. And that means when you go AWOL without, without permission. Uh -huh. So very often in neighboring countries, you have a go at the people next door. Yeah. And something which isn't very ad admirable, you give the name of the, of the country. No one makes fun of their own people, do they? When no, 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 no. This is, this is beyond, beyond making jokes of. No. You are listening to ABC Radio and Rolly Sussex. If you've got a question, the number to call, 1300 612. June is in Talanga. Hello, June. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm ringing on behalf of, well, about a question my nine-years-old granddaughter asked me about the naming of the teen numbers. Uh, she said, why do we have 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, and so on, but mm. why is that 3 teen and 5 teen uh, and then, of course, 11 and 12. So I just wondered... Yes. Um, I, I didn't have an answer for her. I wonder, is there an answer for that question? Yeah, in the in the Germanic languages, which is the family of languages that German and uh, English and Dutch and Danish and Icelandic grew from, uh, the the numbers go up to ten, okay, and then you've got special words for eleven and twelve. So in English we have eleven and twelve. In German you've got elf and zwölf, but then you go into the teens, and thirteen is just three plus ten. And 14 is 4 plus 10 and so on. And over the years, the, the, the 10 bit became pronounced as teen. And then when you get to 20, instead of being teen, it's T-Y. So the 20, 30, 40 and so on. And each time it's, it's the, the multiple by 10. So it's the way language, uh, developed over the years. And you do, did need a difference of pronunciation to distinguish 13 from 30. And so we've, we've got a, a from 13 on, the series is, is actually pretty helpful. The teens tell you that it's less than 20. Uh, but the, the 11 and 12 ones were just odd. They developed locally. I think because perhaps we used to do things in dozens and having up to 12 was something which was quite commonly talked about, much less so nowadays when we don't do 12s anymore, we do decimal. Thanks for calling in, June. I wonder if that where the dozen concept comes from because the Indians use base 10, but did the Sumerians use base 6? before that? Is that a remnant of the way other people used to count, sixes and twelves? 
I'm, I'm not sure. There, there was a convention that certain things were done in twelves, and uh, in, in the word twelve is related to Latin duodecim, which is twelve again. And uh, certainly there were twelve pennies in a shilling and twenty shillings in a pound. And I suffered at school for years learning conversions from one to the other. Yes. So, um, you know, you, you used to have a score of something, which was twenty, and... Um, uh, if you were, went to a very expensive shop and you bought something, you didn't pay for it in pounds, you paid for it in guineas, which was a pound and a shilling. Yeah. And so there are various universe, units of numbers. And in fact, Indian has <laughs> got crore and lakh. Yes, that's so confusing which are, for everyone. Yes, uh, bigger numbers, which, which they have introduced into the series. We just go, you know, uh, ten, hundred, thousand, million. Yeah. But I, I can't remember what crores and larks are. Can you tell us? So I think crore is a hundred thousand. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'd have to look. And luck, I think that's right. Yes. And luck, I think, is ten million. I can't remember. I never use the words. My parents use the words all the time. I have to get them to translate to yeah. something more Germanic. Um, yeah, and when you talk English in India, the English, Indian people use these words all the time in English yeah. because they are, for the way Indians use numbers, a convenient way of designating a number at a certain size. Yes, yeah, it's all evolutionary. Chinese basically. do it also. They've got special words for 10 million and things. That's right. You are listening to ABC Radio and hearing from Rolly Sussex now. We've got a couple of calls that have come in. Craig is on the Sunshine Coast. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. What was your question for Rolly? Rolly, it's millimetre centimetre, yes. metre, yes. and suddenly yes. it becomes kilometre. Yes, it does. Why um, And this is odd because the, the ometers are normally measuring instruments like anemometer and barometer and so on. And if, you, if you're going to follow a, a logical pattern, then it should be a millimetre, centimetre, decimetre, metre, kilometre and so on. But very widely in the English-speaking world, the word kilometre has become very, very common. There was a, um, a story that Gough Whitlam had used it in the house, and he also believed that because of Greek, and he knew some Greek, that, the, uh, that it should be kilometre. So both kilometre and kilometre exist. I say kilometre because I think it's, it's more logical to do so. Uh, the army gets around it, and, and this is now passed into general usage. They call it clicks. So 100 kilometres or 100 k's is 100 clicks uh, because you're trying to avoid making a choice between kilometre and kilometre. Um, either will be acceptable. You'll hear both on the ABC. And uh, I think probably kilometre, because it's gaining in frequency, will eventually win out, even though it breaks the sequence. Thank you for your calls today. Unfortunately, Rolly, we have come out of time. Rolly, we'll be back with you next week with your questions. Before we let you go, Rolly, do you want to leave us with any final thoughts? Yeah, well, in Latin, the, the, the motto of Queensland is audax ac fidelis, which means bold and true, which is rather nice. But I do have a, a, a funny one as well. Uh, Dan Quayle, who is vice president of the US, uh, visited Latin America. And, of course, the, the, the Latin, uh, Latin America is the bits of Southern America which speak Romance languages. It's all, all Spanish except for Brazil, which they have Portuguese. And he said, I was recently on a tour of Latin America, and the only regret I have was that I didn't study Latin harder in school so that I can converse with those people. <laughs> yeah. That's a common wouldn't have helped him much. <laughs> no. <laughs> Rolly, thanks again for joining us. Are you back in the studio next week? No, uh, next week I'll be in either Prague. I think I'll be okay. in Berlin, actually. So. All right. Emma will be back with you then. It's been nice chatting to you, Rolly, over the last couple of weeks. Pleasure. On your radio and online. At home or on the road. This is ABC Radio.